week. Uh, we are moving into Acts 18 and 19 today, and we've had a week off, which means our brains went to sleep on what we did the previous week, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> we, we see that last week we concluded Paul's second missionary journey. Um, we saw last week a nice emphasis placed upon evangelism. If you recall, I went through and we talked about some of the patterns that we saw in those chapters that we looked at um, last week uh, of work for how Paul addresses and, and witnesses to people. Can you recall just from memory, what were the differences in the way that Paul demonstrates to us the way he, he gave the gospel message out in different situations? Either Paul or any of the, of the apostles for that matter. Yes. If it was um, the Athenians, he kind of saw it from their worship of their idol, from their unknown God, and went from there. Excellent. Okay. So he always tapped into. A, number one, he had to know his audience. And then number two, he had to kind of identify for himself what that particular audience's real need might be and from their point of understanding. Now, that's real skill. That does take a great deal of skill. Uh, who in here is really evangelistic, really feels that that is their passion? And Okay, we don't have any evangelists in here this morning. I'm surprised. Not me. Why are you pointing at me? <laughs> oh. Well, I will, but but doesn't mean I'm good at it. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So to me, though, this particular skill, what is it? Because we talked about this last week, and I did ask this question. What is it about Paul's ability to be able to do that? What would, did we see in Paul's habits of life as a Christian? that equipped him to be able to do this, I mean, to have this kind of power and insight. What were some... He knew both sides. Okay, so he had been trained, number one. Okay, so there was a measure on his part to do for himself what needed to be done, which was train himself up with wisdom and knowledge and truth, correct? Okay, would you say everyone in this room is capable of doing that part? Absolutely. Okay, and then what else did we see? As we saw him, for instance, go. when did he went to find Lydia and they preached to her, right? And, and she won her into faith. Why were they going where they went and found her? What was their, do you remember why they were heading there? To pray. They were on their way. It was on, it was on the day of the, the Sabbath and they were going to a place of quiet, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, a place of prayer, is that how it phrases it? Okay, to, to find a, a place of prayer. So one of the qualities we see with Paul in there is that Paul and all those with him, for that matter, always remember to stay tapped in through both worship and prayer to Christ and to God the Father on a regular basis. So that's a secondary thing. Now, in part, that is our part, too, just like making sure we're training ourselves in the word, which is what we're all doing here, right? So we're doing that part. But the secondary thing is to ourselves, discipline ourselves to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, right? But but to seek out opportunity and to seek out t- 
times in, on a regular basis to go into a place where we're in prayer and worship. So that's another thing, okay? Very good. Okay. The, he had a specific calling of Christ and seeing him on the road to, to um, um, Emmaus, right? No, D- Damascus. Dem- don't, yeah, leave this. My brain is dead too this morning. Damascus. Okay, so um, on that part, now we're tapping into and we're talking about whose responsibility in this work of evangelism. Whose work is that? That's the work of the Spirit and of God himself. So God both has to guide us, direct us, empower us, right? Now, we know that we're empowered on a, on a um, foundational level, which is justification. We receive the Spirit, every one of us, right? But there is also an additional kind of um, uh, point that you have to kind of bring up, which is spiritual gifting, right? Because when he gives us the spirit, he also gives each one of us specific spiritual gifts, correct? How many of you have ever um, sat under a person, and it doesn't matter what the role is, whether it's mercy, whether it's administration, whether it's teaching, whether it's acts of service. I mean, these are a few of the spiritual gifts, correct? Y'all are familiar with some of those? Have you ever sat, sat under or worked under someone who was operating in that role and they were terrible? Like, they should not be there. They don't know what they're doing. They're just mucking up the water. They're making a bigger mess than they, we all started with. And is that not a person that sometimes you just want to say, you know, Lead, follow, or get out of the way, right? But they're obviously not capable of leading because what does that tell you about a person who's do operating, for instance, maybe they're operating here in the capacity as a teacher like I'm doing right now, but they're, but they're really poor at it. What do, what do you know then by observing that kind of a scenario? And then in contrast to that, when you do the opposite and you know somebody who's gifting, you know, Don, who's an amazing servant, he... He can spot a need in a room in two seconds. Heinz is another one. Awesome servant. Yoshiko, servant heart, big time. So administrators, right? Or whatever our gifts are, they're usually recognized by the body of Christ. And James and I were talking about this sort of earlier about, you know, what is your spiritual gifting? How how are you going to recognize the gifting that you have, right? So I'm kind of mentioning this in relationship to where we were last week with, uh, with the homework because evangelism is one of the specific gifts. And certainly not everyone is gifted to be an evangelist. However, would you say... Although not everyone is necessarily to go into evangelism as a full-time you know, role in the body of Christ or in, as a ministry, but would you say we all have a, an opportunity and a responsibility to share the gospel? Yes. Absolutely. So it's very interesting. The idea of teaching or, or sharing the gospel is something that everyone needs to be able to do, correct? Um, I remember in um, when, it, when the... Uh, qualifications of the elder is given one of the qualifications is that they must be able to teach right that doesn't mean they all have to have the spiritual gift of teaching however just being able to teach is different than having a spiritual gift to teach and you can see it though through people who teach 
when they're not doing it well, or pastors who preach, and if they're not doing it that well, you know, you sit through some uh, sermons and you just kind of want to nod off, right? But there are others that you're just like this and you're riveted. You can't get enough and you can't wait to hear what they're going to say next. And, you know, you're flipping the, the pages of your Bible faster than, you know, lightning trying to get everything down. It is an amazing thing. So in part with what we're seeing in the book of, of Acts then is giftedness that's by the work of the Holy Spirit, right? But there's also secondarily preparedness of the body of Christ to be prepared to do whatever the work is that God calls them to. And I can tell you that on occasion, God has through my life over the years, occasionally called me to do things like serving administration, believe it or not. Um, but it was not my favorite thing to do. I was, I was, I actually was, Oh, I hate to say it too loud on tape because somebody might hear. But I actually coordinated an entire VBS program one year. It had, we had several hundred children. We had like 100 people on staff. I did all the teacher training for the teachers and did all the coordinating, got all the snack people. I mean, it was a big job. This was when we were in Turkey. And I am not an administrator. But God empowered me because I was available and God needed that to be filled, right? And so I stepped up. I said, okay, I'll do this. I managed to have a lot of great people who came alongside of me and helped me keep my head on straight. Uh, And I had a great person to follow who had it all kind of laid out from the year before. So I was able to just kind of follow. But um, I want us to understand that there is a part, however, on our part, which is to step up to the plate and do our part. But we can never short, um, you know, think in a small way about the work, though, of the call and the empowering that God gives you to do whatever it is that he is requiring of you to do or asking of you to do at the time. Yes. Well, God says that if you do it and you're willing and you pray, that he will empower you to Mm -hmm, do it mm -hmm. and give you that ability. Yeah. And one of the things I also see in here is this... This tapping into uh, the Holy Spirit, as far as um, we see Paul not quenching the Spirit, we see Paul uh, following the leading of the Spirit, being obedient to the, to the speaking voice of the Spirit in his life, correct? And so this all also has had a great deal of influence in how we see Paul either go or not go, Right? do certain things or not do certain things. Last week, we also saw him when he went uh, and met uh, Lydia. What city was he in? He was in Macedonia. Was it at um, Philippi? Okay, so he was in Philippi. And to get to Philippi, he had traveled all through Turkey, right? And it mentioned all those regions in, in what they called Asia Minor at that time, right? And he passed through Asia Minor. And what had the Spirit told him concerning going into these places? No, the spirit kept saying, no, don't go here. No, don't go there. So he passes through Turkey and he goes into Macedonia in Turkey. And there he meets Lydia, who's from where? She's from Asia Minor, right? Now, that's not an interesting little tiny insight. If you missed it, I think it's quite a powerful thing, too, to understand that. Sometimes we don't have to go where we think we have to go in order to get the word of God into the places that we'd like to see it go. All we have to do is be obedient to the leading of the spirit and then watch him do something in regards to that. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Very self-reliant person. He yeah. knew it all. Mm-hmm. And so he was strictly focused on himself. He was on a mission. Yeah. And in the moment he got the word from Jesus, just the opposite. Yeah. And that's what we see with the reliance on spirit, you know, six, seven times. He would not. He was on, he wanted to go there, but he heard no. Right, right. And you don't see any. Right. You know what. what do we see even this weekend? The same thing, don't we? Right. Right. Yes. If Paul had gone to some of those places that he had desired to go, but the Spirit was telling him no, what might have been the outcome in those? They could have. He could have walked right into a very hostile environment because, well, it became hostile. That's true. But what had God said to him in chapter uh, 18 about him going to back into um, Corinth, for instance, when he was at Corinth? He said, yeah, he says, don't, don't be silent and don't be what? Don't be afraid. Because God was saying, I have what here? Isn't that amazing? Wasn't that a cool? Wasn't that cool? I love that little tiny insight. Well, I have many people in this city. So it was like God knew he, 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 his eyes were upon. I like that verse in Chronicles Celeste and I talk about it sometimes. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those whom he might... Um, uh, support, fully support. And so, and in this case, bring into salvation. And so his eyes had gone to and fro over that city in Corinth, and God was saying, I have many people in this city. All they need to do is hear the gospel, and then you will reap a great harvest. So again, we see behind the scenes of evangelism is the work of the Holy Spirit, how vital it is for us to... Um, I guess, bow our knee to God's leading in it and understand that we can't force a person. Uh, When you try to evangelize a person whose heart is not open, what happens? They reject it. They do reject it. And actually, can you do more danger than... Yes. Yeah. They can actually become harder because it's the right time. That's right. That's right. So it, even though it's really hard, sometimes it is better to just step back and let go. Um, I, the imagery of stomping the dust from the feet, as Paul does, uh, that's hard for me to fully embrace that when it comes to someone that I really love in my family or something, or a very close friend. But yet still the principle of it really needs to be embraced by us. We need to know, to know that we need to step back sometimes and just zip the mouth. And let the Holy Spirit work on them and wait for God to tell us to say something, right? When I went on the cruise, I met a man from Japan. Yes, you told us that. And I asked him how many gods they have in Japan was how I opened up the subject. And he said, we have 108 gods, one for everything. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, well, we have one God and he takes care of everything. And so he... What a contrast. Isn't that amazing? Our God is much bigger than any of yours because he takes care of it all and you need all of these. Yes, that's a great approach. No, he didn't understand a lot of English, so I made it really easy. I said to him, you know, we all do things 
that God doesn't like. And I says, we need to ask for forgiveness. And I says, when we do that, God calls it repentance. And I says, when we do that, God opens our heart and the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us peace of mind. Wow. Wow. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Not only peace of mind, but spiritual insight and understanding. We we were looking at a verse yesterday in, in our ABF class. Uh, in First Corinthians 2, where it says that the things of the scriptures, the, the word of God itself is foolishness to the world yes. apart from the spirit. With the spirit, then they get understanding, right? Yes. So if you are trying to preach the gospel to somebody who doesn't want to hear it and they are of the world, it's foolishness to them. And so you don't know how God can use you don't know, but in that scenario, obviously the Lord gave you opportunity and it seemed like it was an open door when you put your toe in the water and you felt that it was okay. And then you were able to make the, and who knows what seed you planted for that man. Yeah. God will do it. That's exactly right. When I told my husband, he said, you got guts. Yeah, very good. Okay, so then that takes us to the next point, which is um, w- trying to, as we move through here, also pay attention to some of the principles about the gospel message itself. What are some of the essential qualities about the gospel that we've learned so far? What are some things that would be essential in giving out the gospel? Meaning, well, meaning that you need, you have to explain to people why they need a savior. Okay, so that they that there is a savior and that they need a savior. And what would be the qualities of who that savior is that would be important that we've seen in Acts present? Who is Jesus? What did he do? He fulfilled the law, and he did that by. There you go. That's the some of those qualities that that death, burial, and resurrection, and that power over over life. In of course, is a huge um, uh, doctrinal statement of that he is God Himself with the power over life and death. Um, we also talked then last week about the subject of repentance, and I gave it to you very briefly, kind of at the end. But I'm wondering if you had time to really ponder on that at all. Um, I was expressing to you, and it turns out the pastor had preached on it, which I had not known that. The week before he had preached on this very subject of repentance and how essential and vital it is in the, in the walk of faith. To go in, to enter into faith, there must be a, a, a repentance, correct? Um, how would you address a statement by someone if they felt that the idea of repentance was a work? It would, how would you explain to them that it is or it is not? That's right. So you are saved by grace alone. And yet, does the word of God tell us that we must repent in order to be saved? Yes. Yes, it does. Over and over in the book of Acts, it says repent and believe. That's right. So if that's true, then, by the fact that the word of God in Acts teaches us that the word believe and the word repent are are harmoniously involved then in the result bringing salvation if believing is not a work right Right. then repentance is also what not a work work. what is how would you define repentance if you were to try to explain it to someone it is in your heart so what what would you want to avoid if you were talking about repentance 
Right. So the do's and the don'ts, right? You have to do this or, you, or you're not supposed to do that. So if you go into, the, into a conversation about repentance with a person that you're hoping will come into faith and you're trying to explain to them repentance is not a work, you don't want them to make a list of things that they either should do or should not do, right? Okay. Right. Right. So if it's not you having to clean up your act, what is, what is repentance? Okay, it's humbling your heart before God, and therefore part of it is an intellectual uh, agreement with God then about what? About what he has said, about sin, about who you are, about who he is. Okay, so repentance is an intel- it's intellectually acknowledging. It starts with a, a knowing God and believing it, it meaning that, that you're acknowledging God what God has said, and you're saying, I bow my knee to that, okay? That's exactly right. Right, right. That's what you try to avoid. But I can tell you for many years, that is exactly what I did, you know, because I didn't know better, and I didn't know any other way to approach it. Um, but, you know, if as you get older, you get skilled, <laughs> Absolutely, that there's a day of judgment if you don't believe. Exactly, that's true. No, you're right, James. Yeah. The other thing is your conscience will bother you. Okay. Hopefully, if the spirit is at work, then there'll be a conscience that's that reveals to you, makes you understand that there's a that there's a um, uh, that there's a right and a wrong. And who gets to decide what the right and wrong is? Is the is the real question, right? It, it's well, the spirit and God's word itself. God Himself is who we must agree with. That's where repentance really comes in. It's a matter of us agreeing with God about all that He said and all that He has done for us, and be- both believing on it and repenting of our ways to turn to His way. Right. So it's it's really it's um, the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, repentance is a foundational doctrine of salvation and is required in order to receive God's salvation. This fact does not mean God's grace is earned by doing so. Admitting sin and desiring to turn from it is not a work. It's a conviction of the heart and a confession with your mouth. And is that not what the scripture says in the book of Acts? Confess with your mouth and and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and you shall be saved. And then, and then it goes on generally, and it speaks about being baptized, right? Okay. What I was going to say is on repentance, there's a little symbol we use on the on drawing our observation worksheet. It is uh, kind of like a U-turn. I know. <laughs> going in one direction and going, and going the other, the changing course. Right. They're going in one direction. Right. To believe in Christ is to turn around, and now you're believing. Exactly. Trusting in something someone else has done for yourself. That's exactly right. So it it is actually, it is both intellectually agreeing with God, and then secondarily, it is bowing your heart before God. So it's an acknowledging of truth, and it's a confession with your lip that God is right, and that is what repentance is, and that is what is required. Now, if a person is truly repentant, 
They see God's word clearly and they're going, yes, God is right. Yes, his word is true. Yes, Jesus died for my sins that I not remain in sin, right? I acknowledge that I'm bowing my knees. So what should I then, once I am gone down the aisle, I've been baptized, I've been placed in the body of Christ, what, what should you be seeing in my life then as a result of that? A changed life. There should be some fruits, fruit bearing and a change of life. So what if you don't see that in a person who's making a claim to have faith, but yeah, did you see when we, now I'm going to say, well, I guess right into this week's homework, because is this not what Paul apparently did when he approached these 12 men? Uh, and he, they were all men who were, were claiming to be in faith, and yet something was missing, apparently. And Paul was paying attention and noticing that there seemed to be something not quite right in, in, in what he was seeing in them. Not that it's the doing that gets you saved, but once you're saved, what? There should be some doing, right? That's what James says. The book of James says... Uh, faith without works is dead, right? There, it is, it's non-existent. It's not true. So if you're going to come into faith, then there needs to be a transformation in your life. And this is, I think, a real fundamental thing. Therefore, if we're talking to people and evangelizing the world, what then must be a part of the gospel message? An understanding that repentance has to be a part of their faith, uh, of their faith walk with God, that their life needs to convey to the world that they understand this is sin and God calls it sin and I'm turning from it. I am in agreement with God. I'm going to believe God. It's a giving up of your rights. Exactly. It's exactly what it is. All right. Okay. So, all right, let's get moving on then into the, what we did this week in our homework. One of the things y'all should be working on, uh, week by week, of course, is your uh, acts at a glance, correct? So if you have that handy, you might want to pull that out just for uh, reference at some point when we get there because we're going to talk about our themes and hopefully you've titled your things and that's where you've written down your theme titles. Um, So let's start with Acts 18 and let's just go through and see the events that we see in there and then try to glean out of it what we see God is teaching us about this thing called the church, about salvation, about relationship with God, about the, the, the work of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and all of their designed or specific roles in relationship to the church. We want to kind of pull a lot of those points out as we just move along, okay? All right. Let's start in Acts 11, or uh, sorry, Acts 18. Let's start verses 1 through 11. We'll come back and title it here after we get a little bit of work done in here. What do we see in um, Acts 18 on the whole? What's going on in this chapter? How about some of your key words? What are some key words in that chapter? There's a bunch of them, guys. I almost can't read my sheet because I got so many things marked. It's just craziness. What's going on in Acts 18? Okay, there's preaching the word, so you should have marked the word in in its various places. Okay, what else? Baptism. Uh, Yes. 
And, and there you go. I was to say, just before that is the word believing. So you see the, the believing, uh, believed and believing become a key thing in this particular one. There you go. So you see two people groups particularly uh, brought up, the Jews and the Greeks. So we see that there's a, uh, a work that's going on among a people here in this city, but it's both Jew and Greek, okay? All right, so, and so who are some of the major characters in Acts 18? Who's some new people that show up for us? Okay, Priscilla and Aquila right off the bat. So in verses 1 through 11, what is going on here? In chapter 18. Okay, he's at Corinth. Okay, let's put this up here little by little. Paul at Corinth. Okay, that's the first part. What else? Reasoning in the synagogue. Okay, so he he goes in, he reasons in the synagogue. What happens in response to his reasoning with these people at the synagogue? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they're not real receptive of this, are they? So it's really interesting to me that, and I think it is another thing to be observant of, and that is just because a person or a certain people group don't respond well doesn't mean Paul doesn't keep going back and trying, right? But he only tries for a certain measure of time, and then what ultimately happens? Mm-hmm. Yes, and he definitely was. What happens when Silas and Timothy arrive in verse 5? He devotes himself 100% to God. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So there is a, a, another second kind of a message in there about people who do ministry, right? Potentially you can learn from this. What are some of the truths that you see in here about people in, in ministry? That's exactly what it, I think it says. That's right. So because obviously, because before he was having to work, but he was also willing to do so, right? When God wasn't making a provision under any other way, he didn't just boohoo about it and say, poor me and somebody needs to help me. He just rolled up his sleeves and got to work. He did what he needed to do in order to have the finances to help him. And, and when he was doing it that way, he was still preaching, but he was doing it how? Part-time, right? It was kind of, he fitted in around his work because he met his financial needs first. His responsibility was to not be a burden on other people, that he would pull his own weight and make his own money when he needed to, right? But then when uh, Silas and Timothy did arrive, then what? He was free to go into full-time ministry. So that's another little additional insight there, okay? So we see Paul, he's he's made these friends of Aquila and Priscilla, we see a little insight about Paul as far as his life being a tent maker. Uh, also about Aquila and Priscilla as well, that they were t- tent makers. There were some other little subliminal things there about where they came from and who would, the Caesar was at the time and what had happened to them, what was going on with them. Why were they in uh, Corinth? Jews got kicked out of yeah, they did. They had gotten, yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Actually, one of the things I want to do with us is do a timeline, because I think a timeline, did anybody in here do a timeline this week in their homework? You're going to find that I think this will be real insightful. So let's just do part of that for the sake of, as we, when we get there, we'll start seeing um, application. So we have the cross. Afterwards, we have the birthing of the church, correct? We see also then side by side with it sits what? The temple, the synagogue, right? Okay, so there in in history, at least present, are both at at the time, correct? We um, We have a birthing of a church that's already transpired at this point. Back in chapter 2, we were told to go back and look at uh, the the work of the Holy Spirit and the gift of speaking in tongues, which is going to come up here in in a little bit, right? Let's see where is that one at? Uh, oh, that's not till Acts nineteen. But what we do see in the birthing of the of the church, number one, who received the Holy Spirit first? Okay, the apostles, the Jews, right? Okay, and that was in chapter 2, right? And then secondly, we saw who? Which is, we're going to call the Gentiles, right? And that's in chapter, because that's how he refers to them later. He speaks about them as Gentiles. That's in chapter um, 8, right? And then I'm going to put nine as well because nine, then he goes on and explains it better. He, the event is presented in chapter eight of them receiving the Holy Spirit right at the end of it. And then nine, he goes to Jerusalem, gives a defense for them. So you get more insight about that, right? So that's where we are at this point. And in both of these events of the apostles receiving, uh, the Jews receiving the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, And the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit, what is accompanied with it? When they receive the Spirit, what happens? Mm-hmm. Which is languages. I'm glad you brought that part up. Languages. It, it's not a babbling. It's not an, an uh, a static murmuring of uncomprehensible things but it's very specific it's their it's a language and when they spoke what were they speaking the mighty acts of god God. i love that okay now we're gonna keep building on this when we get uh further here i'm gonna keep going but so far what we have we're looking at in a timeline as we see the apostles have received the Holy Spirit, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. And then the next thing we're going to look at is in this chapter is we see another group that receive it and they also speak in tongues. And we're going to see if we can tie that in and start to look at why that might be happening in that particular uh, chapter. All right, so we see in verses 1 to 11, let's go back to Acts 18, Paul's at Corinth. He's uh, instructed to do what? By, and by who? Yeah. To by God to, number one, not speak, right? The gospel, in other words. And to not what? Not be afraid. 
All right. I think that's kind of a significant point because of what we see that follows in, in this particular city where he's at. Okay, so when he has this instruction, he's instructed by God. So what do we see there that we might need to mark? What, if, it, if it's been a vision that's come to him, then we have what? A sign, correct? It's another sign. So I'm going to mark this up here with a, a symbol of my sign. I thought about it later and since, you know, afterwards I've thought, you know, I should have been making my sign a green sign for go instead of a red sign for stop. <laughs> but I don't know. I thought of it later. <laughs> so all my signs are, look like that in, the, in, my, in my text. Anytime I see a sign like a vision or, or an appearance of an angel or something specific where it's supernatural like the, the gift of tongues, I use this little stop sign symbol so that I see that there's a sign that's been given. So the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you for I have many people in this city. I think it's interesting that he's careful to say there that no one will attack you to harm you. He didn't say no one will attack you, but he said to harm you, right? So I think that's good. <laughs> okay, that's in 1 through 11. Then we go to 12 to 17, and the next section does what for us? What do we see going on there? Okay, he's there for a year and a half. Okay. And at the end of a year and a half, what happens? Okay. So what is it that ends his work there then, basically? Another uprising, correct? So there's a Jewish uprising. He's a, hundred, a year and a half in Corinth, and it's ended by a Jewish uprising. Yeah, that's kind of cool, isn't it? That somewhere in there, that's one of the things that definitely comes up in this book as you're looking through and you're looking, you're trying to kind of systematically time things out. Because we're at, we're looking at time references and how long was he here and how long was he there. One of the things you you do know by the time you do the book of Acts is that not all the details are given to us in the book of Acts. Not everything about Paul's life and his work is in here. Why is that? What is the purpose for the book of Acts? The growth. Of the the growth of, that's it. The birth of the church by the Holy Spirit and its growth. That's what this is a record of. It's not a record of who? Paul and his life. That's right. So you cannot get all the pieces to Paul in the book of Acts, number one. Number two, if people want to say to you, oh, well, there, there's a mistake here because it says this here and it says that there, your answer to them is? How would you go about getting an, an, a, a complete account of Paul's life? You would have to piece it together through all of the other writings that he's given and try to systematically time it all out. Now, can you imagine the, the amount of work there is in that? 
you all have on page 171 in your uh, appendix a sheet that someone has done this for us so graciously that they have basically done just what we talked about. They have gone, you can see all the places they've mentioned in here. They, they go, there's Galatians, there's First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, there's Romans, there's Colossians, there's Philemon, there's, um, uh, did I say Ephesians and Philippians already? So you can see all the references in here where Paul makes statements through his other writings that gives clues but I would probably say, although because I've never done it myself, but I would say that even with all these clues, because Paul never emphasizes his life, it's not a biography of his life, you're probably never going to get a, absolutely every single piece of his timelining figured out. You're, all we can do is use the clues that are given to us and plug them in where it looks like they fit. Because what is God's word in regard to Paul, is it is Paul the significant character that we need to follow? There you go. He is simply a bondservant. It's the focus is not Paul. There you go. So because the word of God on the whole, but specifically in the book of Acts where we're at, is not about Paul and about Paul's life, we just need to understand that not all the, the insights are going to be given to us there on him. And even if you had months and years to spend going through all of these different epistles that he has written and trying to piece it together, you may never get a full exact picture of where everything is. Some of the things we're guessing at, well, we think he must have written it here because he said this and because this person was with him and that person was there. And so all you can do is try to try to uh, try to put it together. The one thing that we can do, though, pretty clearly is follow his journeys, right? Because he gives that to us in the book of Acts. So that part is really cool because he tells us he went here and then he went here and then he went here, right? But you can tell that a lot of details are dropped out of there as far as, you know, what he did and who he saw. Not all the things that he worked and did are recorded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. It's so true. There, there are a lot of people in history who've recorded that very thing. Um, who's the one that does a case for Christ? Strobel, Lee Strobel. He did the same thing. He started out saying, "I'm going to disprove this," and in the end, he became a believer. So. I tell you. There was another, there was a pastor, too, who used to go, uh, I want to say like the Jan, Johnny Appleseed story somehow weaves into that, but that he, he was going to, he was, became an evangelist that went from place to place and they'd have all these, um, what do you used to call them? We used to call them tent meetings, revival meetings, and he became a revival evangelist. And because he, but he started out saying, I'm going to disprove it. And he came into faith too. So that happens a lot. And again, all you can accredit that too is because their intent is to disprove, but you can see then what is God doing in the heart? He's changing their heart and he's drawing them. So every time they would think they had something that they were going to prove 
that God was not, it turned out that it proved God was. And little by little, God chipped away that hard heart and they came into faith. It's very exciting. Okay, so we see a year and a half in Corinth and it's ended by a Jewish uprising. There is a great big but in this, however, right? And I don't know how, how much you came into on this, but let's, let's talk about this event in 12 to 17 of a, this Nick's character. Who is he in, in verse 12? That's Ga- Galileo, okay? Or Galileo. Okay, so Galileo was pro, uh, the proconsul of Achaia. And the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Now, what is that judgment seat called in, Hebrew, in the original language? That's right, Don. Very good. You get a star for the day. The Bema seat. It's really fun. It's really fun. When we went um, with Kay Arthur, we got to go to Corinth and see the Bema seat, which is there. So we all got to sit at the Bema seat in Corinth and have pictures taken and all that kind of stuff. So it was just very fun. But understanding the, the, the um, political thing which transpired through this event of an uprising against Paul. Can you imagine, though, spending a year and a half of your life pouring your heart into spreading the gospel and then having this huge uproar come up against you and just, wouldn't you just feel squashed? That, oh, it just make you feel um, like you wasted your, a year and a half of your life. And to what avail did it all come to? And yet, what have we just been told in verse 9 and 10? To what had Paul been told by a vision? Don't be afraid, and I have many people in this city. And you're going, really, Lord? Okay, all I see is the bad guys at this point. So this is pretty significant. So uh, Gallio, then, who is this pro-council, tell me what you learned about Gallio when you did work on this. Did you do any research on him? No? So who, who is a pro, what is the pro-council about? Obviously, just from the text, what do you see about him? He's the Roman government in, in the place of Corinth, right? And he comes in and he takes his seat at the Bema seat, which is also called what by definition? The judgment seat. So he's a judge, in essence. He's going to make a ruling about a case that's being brought to him. So who's bringing the case is what? The Jews. So the Jews have brought... Paul, and they put him before the judgment seat of this proconsul, and they bring a charge against him. So what does uh, Gallio say about this? Okay, so the... Okay, so right away he determines that their charge against Paul, and what is their charge against him? Say it again. Okay, very good. And that's really super important. That what they were charging Paul was is that he was introducing basically a new faith system. And for the Romans uh, government, this is a big problem. Did anybody read up on that a little bit to find out? What are the Romans, as far as the Roman government was concerned, how did they view the idea of new religions coming up? What was their determination about that? They were okay with it as long as you bowed the knee to Caesar also. Um, they allowed other religions. 
There were, but, but did they allow new religions to be birthed during the days of Rome? No, they did not. And if you didn't know that, and I was not aware of that either, that surprised me. What he's, let me just read what my commentary said. Rome did not permit the propagation, meaning breeding or generation or producing, of new religions. Judaism was an accepted and established belief, correct? So what this proconsul Gallio was saying to him is, this is not against the law. In essence, what is he saying about Christianity? It's part of Judaism. It's an offshoot. And therefore, by making this ruling, what did he do as far as Christianity is concerned? He legitimized Christianity in the, under the Roman law. How significant do you think that is? Because from that point forward, what does Christianity now have? A legal precedence that has been established by Gallio that says Christianity is valid and gets to be uh, preached and taught. And he goes back to the Jews and he actually says of them, what does this have to do with me? You work that out. Because he's placing Christianity back on Judaism and he himself is acknowledging exactly what Romans chapter 11 teaches us. What does Romans chapter 11 say about, about Christianity? It doesn't use that word, but what is it saying? That we are grafted in or offshoots of the root. Who is our root? Judaism, right? The Jews are the root. The, the promises to Abraham are the root. The, the belief in the coming seed, that's the root, right? And from that root, root then, when Jesus comes, he fulfills it. And Christianity, we, the church, get grafted into that root system. Isn't that cool? So what Gallio actually does here then is legitimize Christianity. And he does not sever Christianity from, Christi- from Judaism. He shows it as connected, which would you say that's a doctrine that we want to hold fast to as people who understand our, our doctrines? They, they took that as an excuse to Galileo, I think, but if you look back a little bit earlier, uh, verse 5 in the chapter, he was testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, and that was their real issue. Yes, it was. But with that, with that being said, Gallo then obviously said, you're right. If this group of new people called the way are looking and saying, oh, Jesus is the fulfillment of their seed, the promise, the Christ, then this is a part of Judaism. And therefore, I legitimize it. I'm saying to you, this has nothing to do with me. You handle your own problems from the internal structure of your own church system. This thing called Judaism is an established religion. We acknowledge it, and we will not forbid it, right? And the way that's coming out of it is not something that's new. It's part of the root. Did y'all get that when you did your homework? Yes. I love it. I love it. Just because, I mean, again, here we are seeing foundational truths about the church that we need to fully understand and just actually see that in history, in the birthing process of the church, this issue was actually addressed. And it was done so not through a pious Jewish God lover, but through a Roman proconsul who had nothing to do with it. 
He looked at it from the outside in and made an objective observation as a judge and said, I don't think that the way is separate from Judaism. The root is Judaism. The way come out of it because the, what is being preached is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. That's so exciting. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Say it. I said he's pretty smart. Oh, amazing. Would you, what would you say when you think of this, how sovereign do you see God's hand then in this particular event? Even the riot itself, this, this uprising by the Jews was a negative, but then what did God do with it? So what man meant for evil, what? God meant for good. We're right back to the same old principles. Okay, so, so we see in verses 12 to 17, after a year and a half in Corinth, it's ended by a Jewish uprising, but Gallio legitimizes Christianity. Okay, I'm just going to put that as a subnote. Galileo legitimizes Christianity because its root is Judaism. So it's not it's not a new not a new religion. It's enough it's a fulfillment. I'm sorry, say it again. I think it was the Roman soldiers that did it. Oh, Pilate did, yeah, okay. Yes, you're right. That's a good point. That's exactly right. So I love this, that, that in these verses we see a kind of a negative thing going on here. But when you get to it, what you find out is that God brings good out of it by legitimizing Christianity, number one, but also by, in, under Roman law then, from that point for, forward, Christianity is going to be acknowledged as its roots being Christianity and this being the, off, the out, outbirthing of it. So it's now, the decision was crucial for it was tantamount to legitimizing Christianity in the eyes of Roman law. So he, le- he legitimizes Christianity by Roman law. Okay? Yes. Now I know with our current uh, communication, a judge would make a ruling and set precedent that others will follow, but they didn't have the method of communication that we do today. Oh, they've got a great communication method, though. They do. I know, remember, we talked about this, about, um, remember the, the trade, the, the route, for instance, of the letters of the seven churches and how they would travel and things would be sent very exponentially, very quickly, quite often. Um, and we know that even, for instance, when, let's go back to the Greek empire, Alexander the Great. Why did he have the language created which was so precise that when he gave an order everybody would know exactly what he said because when he spoke and he was maybe he was, wherever he was location wise whether he was in Greece or whether he was uh, in Babylon wherever he was at at the time that word would go out and it did go out 
And those people would know exactly what he was saying, right? So the, the words went out, the letters went out, the rulings went out, and it became known very quickly through the trade routes and through the letters that, that went about. So although they didn't have TV, they didn't have telephone, they didn't have texting like we do, they had a very good system of getting information out, and they did do so on a regular basis. The other thing is you, you, you see if you look back in history is a lot of these People like the pro-councils who are kind of, what do you call them, they're, they're representatives of the Roman government. They would gather together often and discuss cases. And I mean, they did this a lot. They would meet each other up in these major cities. What's interesting is um, right now in, um, in, the Ro- in, the, in um, this part of the world, Corinth has become a really kind of a major hub it was one of the bigger cities, and it was becoming bigger and more prominent as time went on. But when we move into the next chapter, we see a little place called Ephesus. And at the time of this, it still wasn't as huge as it's going to get, however, right? But one day, it become, it very soon actually, it becomes a very major city. Why is it that Ephesus grows to be so important and significant at some point? What do you know about Ephesus as a city? One of the things we see, and we'll get in the next chapter, is all the God worship that goes on there. And one of them is Diana, right? Or Artemis. Right? Okay. There you go. Because it's a harbor. It's a port city. And what, what happens when you have a port city? Lots of cargo, lots of wares, lots of travel, lots of people coming and going from all over the world, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a very international kind of a place. We had this in Turkey where we lived also when we were in Izmir. It was a port city and it was a harbor city and all these ships and so forth would come in and out. And therefore, Izmir on the whole was m- much more modern than the rest of, of Turkey, the rest of Turkey, when you left there, where we had come, where we had lived before, we were down in um, near Tarsus at Injerlik, and down there, it's a it's a farming community, and it's inland more. It, although it is also on a coast, it's but it's not a coastal area. It's not a coastal city right there. But when you go up to Ephesus, you're right on the Aegean Sea, and all that commerce and trade, and it became it, it's a NATO forces are there today. So that's what you see happening with. Uh, Ephesus when we get there. So that's another important little thing that you need to pay attention to as we're looking at and trying to come to proper interpretation of why certain events are happening in these different places, right? Is what is it that God is doing there and what is going, what is he going to be doing there even, right, in the timeline of events. Okay, so let's go back now to 18. Let's start with, uh, that was a cool insight, I think. I loved that one about Gallia, legitimizing Christianity. So then we go to 18 to 22, and the next thing we see uh, is Paul doing what? Yeah, and he goes back where? Where does he go to? goes back to Syria and then what it says he goes up somewhere oh well he goes to he stops there because he's doing what making a vow did y'all do some work on that did you research that what was that about it was really kind of just it's kind of a little side thing but it's interesting 
Okay, so there was some kind of a specific ministry that he was making a vow before God that he was committing himself unto the Lord. And during that time of being committed unto the Lord, what was he not to do? Not cut his hair hair and not drink drink what? Wine or have anything to do with grapes and so forth. Right, exactly. So he was not to participate, not to engage or in, or participate in wine or anything pertaining to wine, and he was not to shave his head. As a Nazarite, as it's a Nazarite vow. It started with the Nazarite as its root. That's where it comes out of. So when he did this, then he was dedicating himself unto the Lord. And what was then he considered until that vow was completed? Holy, holy unto the Lord. Until that vow was completed, he was considered a whole, as holy unto the Lord until that work was accomplished. In the Leviticus passage we went to in homework, it talked about becoming unclean during that period of time and that it would almost require going before a priest and starting the whole process over again. No, no. What what it does, well, that's actually a good question. I hadn't even thought, gone there in my brain, but it's a good point. Okay, so is Paul now reengaging then in Judaism by going and making a Nazarite vow? No, no, he's not. So what is a Nazarite vow? It means to do what? Setting yourself apart to God. Can you do that in Christianity? Do we have people who make these kinds of vows? Maybe not, we may not call them a Nazarite vow, but do we have people who set themselves apart and they do it even in a very public way through a ceremony in a church or something and people lay on hands and set them apart unto the Lord for a specific work? Yes. yes? Um, I just I think it's a great little picture, so it's a good, Yes. Well, I'm, it doesn't, well, you tell me, does it say he concluded it or does he say he was fulfilling it? He was keeping a vow. Okay. I don't know. You know, Carol, that part I'm not sure. And I don't know that it's important exactly. One of the things I do think is cool about it is it shows us that they took vows like that, even, even as a Christian under the new covenant, the idea of taking vows and committing yourself unto the Lord was something that was both acceptable and, and basically it doesn't take you back into Judaism. It simply is what it is. It's a vow. It's a vow saying, I'm committing myself unto the Lord for a specific work. Um, I personally think he could have been completing his vow, which means where was he at this point in his journeys? He was on his way home. So was he completing a vow that he had possibly made before this second journey began? Maybe the vow was initiated back at uh, Antioch before he started out on that first mission back in chapter 15, verses uh, 2 to 4, I think it is, right? Where he left out of Antioch and he started to make this second journey, correct? Maybe that's when he initiated it and this is the completion of it. That makes sense. Maybe.
he had his haircut where he was keeping Adolf. Didn't sound like, and it sounds like some of these other references are all about um, when they do a vow, they have to separate themselves. It says all the days of, of his vow of, se- of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. Okay, so here a razor is passing over his head. So it sounds like he's at the end of it, and now he's getting his hair cut. Okay. Okay, there you go. So, that, so it was the end. And probably then what we can conclude is that this vow... See, I didn't, I didn't ponder on this point too much, as you can tell, till right now. <laughs> this is when I learn most is when we're talking. But... Um, it sounds to me like then he had completed a vow and now he was finishing it and it probably pertained to that missionary journey, right? Because what is the very next thing that's recorded after he shaves his head in keeping that vow? Where does he go? He goes to Ephesus and then where? Caesarea and then from Caesarea to where those things and by the way those things are mentioned but they're mentioned very briefly and the people there want him to stay but he says what? No, I'm I'm going back. I gotta go because what have I what have I gotta go do? Where is he going? By the time he is it twenty two, I think. In twenty twenty two, and then in twenty two, he says he landed at Caesarea, and then where did he do? He went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. I I think it would be helpful if you were to go to uh, chapter fifteen, verse four first. Just take. Take a flip back in your observation worksheet. This is at the beginning of his journey here. It says when... There you go. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church. Now, do you see how that phrasing of the church? It's almost like it's a, a a definitive article, the church. The church where? Verse 4. What does it say? The church where? At Jerusalem. Okay. And the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. And then then from there, you see the next thing he does is goes back out on another journey after that. So he is already back in Acts 15, 4, showing us that he goes back to the church, which is where? At Jerusalem. and And he gives a report. Then drop down to 1530. And, it, you know, after it gives us the, uh, the storyline of, um, uh, they were trying to make a decision at this point, weren't they, about um, disagreements in the church, whether to observe the customs of Moses, right? They were, this is when they had that debate. And when they were done in verse 30, he says, so when they were sent away, They went down to where? Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter that they had decided on back in Jerusalem. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And then from there, what happens? Yes. So what we see then is, again, he's beginning to be sent out. So you see the beginning then of another uh, journey, missionary journey, and he's being sent out from two places. Where are they? The church at Jerusalem, and where's the other one? Antioch. Antioch. So... 
Right, exactly. And they have a disorder. Right, exactly. So it's hard to try to get all these storylines in here. But yes, that's exactly right. So here then in, in Acts 18, verse 22, it says that he, gre- he greeted the church. So where is that? At Jerusalem. And then he went where? Down to Antioch. Now here can be the confusion. When you look on a map, where is Antioch in relationship to Jerusalem? It's up. <laughs> it's not down. So why does he say he went down? It is altitude. And it's more than altitude, even in my mind, it's spiritual altitude. In their mind, spiritually, how is Jerusalem viewed? You always go up to Jerusalem. Yes. Yeah, well, certainly it is, but I'm just saying that really it's also about Jerusalem being viewed as the pinnacle place where God dwells, and they would go up to the house of the Lord always. And so because Jerusalem is viewed as that hill, it's a city which is set upon a hill that it goes up. And certainly in in all of Jerusalem, or Israel rather, today, you know it's pretty flat right? There aren't very many altitudinal places there. So Jerusalem being up on a, on a, a mountain, although they've got a lot of little hills. It says, I went to this mountain to pray and I went to that mountain to pray. There's a bunch of them. But still, Jerusalem was considered the one up because it was the temple mount, right? So that's why they call it up. So that's why it can get confusing when you see little tricks like this in here. The, the explanation is they viewed Jerusalem as exalted, as up. Okay, so anything from there was down. <laughs> okay, um, and that's just the, the Jewish mindset. So Paul then, in 18 to 22, he reports home then, right? <coughs> number one, at Jerusalem. And number two, at Antioch. And interesting, what was Antioch uh, named for? What was the special thing about Antioch that we saw? When we, yeah, first called Christians there. Yep, first called Christians. And obviously Jerusalem is now. Here's what I wanted to do at this point. We see then then. Um, Let me think how I want to do this. I'm going to wait. Okay, let me go to, let's go to the next paragraph. Now, I separated verse 23 all by itself. Even though Kay didn't have you do that on your homework, she had it marked so that it was 18 to 23. I marked 18 to 22, and then I marked 23 all by itself. Tell me what you see in 23 and why I might distinguish that one all by itself. What happens in 1823? Yes, we see 23 is the marking place where Paul begins to go back out. It's, and how would you define this kind of, of um, mission, this third missionary journey? Is there anything distinctive about it that he didn't have in the first two? There you go, strengthening the disciples. So really, this is a follow-up mission, right? So it's his third mission. 
Paul, we're going to put on here, Paul returns to strengthen disciples. That's cute. This is his third mission. Okay, third missionary journey. Okay, that's when it begins there. Then the, the last verses is 24 to 28. What do we see there? This is where we, we find the introduction of another character. Who is he? Apollos. Tell me, when you made a list on Apollos, what kind of things did you see about him? I love that, that he was mighty in the scriptures. And there was another word there in 24. Eloquent. I want to be eloquent. I not think I am, but I would love to be eloquent. I would also like to be mighty in the scriptures, but eloquent just sounds so, you know, nice. All right. I know. That's right. Well, there you go. That, and that's probably why I always get so impressed by the way God does things because he does pick the, un, the unexpected sometimes for certain roles. People that you would never expect to do a certain spiritual gifted role and they do it and they do it so well and then you're like, wow, look at that. That's amazing. I would have never put that person there, but God did and it was, a, it was the right thing, you know? So he's eloquent and mighty in scriptures. What about the name Apollo? I mean, that's a God's name. Um... Okay, so what does that tell you about him? Where was he born? Ah, born in Alexandria. Where is Alexandria? Yes, it is. It's the capital, I think, or it was the capital at one time of Egypt, right? So what do we know about Egypt's uh, faith system and religion? What did they have going on in Egypt? They had gods. All kinds of gods right? So they had the, these multitudes of gods in Egypt, and Apollos was born there. So, well, it is, it is, but it was also, uh, Alexandria is also on a coastline, so a lot of influence. I'm just saying that the, the, that the idea of, okay, there you go. That's true. So what does that tell you about his, about his parents, potentially? What did we know about Timothy? I know, but what did we know about Timothy's parenting? One was a Gentile, one was a Jew. Okay, and he... Right, right. Well, this tells me what was his father possibly. He may have been a Greek. At some point, it calls him a Jew, however, so that tells me that at some point he fully embraced Judaism, right? He probably, unlike Timothy, had become circumcised and became a follower of the uh, Judaism faith system. He was called a Jew, okay? But he had this other, but he had a name like Apollos, which tells you that's not, that's not Jewish, Right, so there's some kind of an influence that occurred there. Potentially, maybe one of his parents. Well, they weren't practicing Jews. They weren't practicing Jews. Something that's true. Maybe they had just gone in. They had been brought. They had been basically led astray, gone into God worship, which we know happened a lot with the Jews. We could, we're, it's all speculation, but it is insightful to say who was this man, Apollos. 
uh, potentially he's a man who had spent a lot of time studying these things out to make a decision to follow Judaism. And when he was uh, found by um, uh, um, Priscilla and Aquila, what did they find him doing? Yeah, he only had a partial part of the of the of the gospel message, and what part did he have? Everything up to the point of who? John the Baptist. So again, we're in that book of transition, aren't we? It is a transitional book, and we are seeing the evidences of that over and over in here, where people seem to have a part of the story, but not the whole story, and and people like Paul and and later Apollos himself, they come along or follow up behind, and they give people the rest of the story, right? Well, and he was at Ephesus teaching and, and whatever, and we'll see the results of that in the next chapter when Paul goes in there. Yes. Right, right. Potentially, it could have been Apollos himself that had been there before. Maybe. Yeah. Well, yes, but I'm just saying, and maybe he was the one that had influenced them, maybe. Or maybe they have been influenced, all of them collectively together. Who knows? But yeah, because we don't, we don't know for sure that he was the one that had trained them. But there is that likeness of the storyline. Mm-hmm. Finally destroyed. Mm-hmm. That's true. But he might have learned some of the things from that too. Yeah. Okay. So, so what we do know now is he's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures. He's he's uh, teaching and and preaching. And so Apollos or um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they pull Apollos aside and they give him the rest of the story. And then what happens to him after that? They teach him more more accurately. It says. In other words, they taught him about the fulfillments in Jesus, right? He wanted to go to Acacia, and they encouraged him and wrote to his disciples to welcome him. Very cool. So what does that tell you then about Apollos and that transition from only having information up to the part of John the Baptist and how he received the rest of the message? Well, he repented, and the Holy Spirit guided him. Yeah. He was willing to bow his knee to that. He recognized... Because what he was believing on was John the Baptist has said, there is one coming after me. Right. And now what uh, 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 Priscilla and Aquila do is they say, the one who is coming after, his name is Jesus. And this is who he was teaching about. And he obviously said, oh, I see that. Now, I am certain they spent quite a bit of time instructing him, showing him how Jesus fulfilled all these things. They probably did what many others do, what even Jesus himself did when he walked along the road to Emmaus with those two disciples and showed who he was from the scriptures, from the prophets, right? Okay, so they believed on it. And what else is really cool about Apollos is then what did they do? They sent him, right? So what does that tell you about their their faith and trust in his ability to go and preach the word accurately and well. Yeah. He was already doing it really well to begin with, right? So 24 to 28, we see Apollos is both instructed and sent out. Now, if you're looking at this purely from the perspective of seeing how the gospel is beginning to spread and what, how God is working this mighty, 
thing among the people of that time. What do we see then with Apollos? Who, who does he become in relationship to Paul himself and in relationship to the church itself? He becomes a fellow worker in the work of the ministry of spreading the gospel itself. He does so very quickly, as a matter of fact. It doesn't take him long. Like Paul, he had already prepared himself and trained himself. He was already intelligent on the scriptures. All he had to do was fill in the, the, the final pieces, and then he was ready to, and to go. His feet were already running. They said, okay, give me the whole story again, because that's cool. The, you know, when the um, Old Testament was translated into Greek, which we call the, tra- uh, the, the Septuagint, the, Septuagint, the that LX. Was by, that was done by Jews from Alexander. I did not know that. That's very cool. I know that Alexander the Great had it commissioned, but I didn't know it was out of Alexandria that he yeah, had that. That is so cool. Very interesting. That's a good little tidbit. Okay, so Apollos is instructed and he's sent out. And where does he go? He goes to Corinth. And while he's at Corinth, where is Paul? He's at Ephesus. So they switched places. So is there any kind of little insight on that that you would say, well, that's very interesting. What do you think the Lord is doing there? Well, even by the, he's, it seems to me like the Lord is moving people into their assigned places. It's like Paul's here for a while and he's doing his work until he meets with some opposition. Then he has to leave and he goes over here. And when he comes over here, then God has raised up Apollos and sends Apollos back over here to, to pick up where Paul had left off. And they switch places and they each have a, an ability then to do a work that so they're they're working collaboratively together god is using two people in two different places and yeah yeah the division that he wants them to have yeah well and is that one in corinth the book of corinthians in the book of corinthians what does he charge the people at corinth for being in chapter three Carnal, they're, you're of the flesh, meaning their eyes are on men rather than who? God. Rather than on God. Their eyes were supposed to be on God, on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of their faith. Paul is not the author or perfecter, neither is Apollos, and that's all he was saying in there. It's neither Paul nor Apollos, it's Jesus Christ. And you're fleshly by keeping your eyes on men. Oh, sure. Stirring the pot. <laughs> Okay, so now let's go into Acts 19, and let's, let's, well, let's title this chapter first. So how did you title chapter 18? Okay, or it's, the one ends and one begins, right? The second one ends and the third one begins, right? Okay. I should have put a two on there. Second journey ends and third begins, okay? 
that that's a that's a pretty good title too. Um, are there any uh, besides that, which is really good? What else do we see in there that might be noteworthy in your title? What significant event? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That Paul at at Corinth's Bema seat, right? It ends with good news for Christianity, right? Because although he, it, the Jews, you know, were trying to shut him down, and in, but the actual outcome of that was it actually strengthened the cause for Christianity, right? So I don't know how you want to put that, but I just, I just had put on mine, Paul at Bema's seat. I want that in my title because I really do think that's it is a pivotal point in the history of the birthing of the church here, this particular chapter. And I don't think I'd ever really paid attention to this chapter in the past, but this this Gallo event of him at the Bema seat is quite profound, quite significant, um, probably one of the most important points along this journey besides the filling of the Spirit and the birthing of the church. We see this event right here, and what's really interesting is how this specifically precedes the very next occurrence of another filling of the Spirit and the speaking of tongues. And these two put together then, I think it's going to show us why we have another speaking in tongues event, okay? So let's go on now to the next chapter, Acts 19, and let's talk about what goes on in 1 to 10, we see Apollos is where? And Paul is at Ephesus. Okay. Now, in that, though, there's these very cool points that happen here. We see 12 men. What happens to them? Okay, so they're saved and they speak in tongues. This is at Ephesus. Okay, and I think that's an important one to say. This is verses 5 to 7, basically. Um, We see that he also in that time has been preaching to who? Who else besides these 12 men? When... It for three months in the synagogues, right? And the end result of that is, again, the Jews reject again, right? So although there, I'm sure there were some uh, individuals who may have come into faith, but on the whole, the Jews rejected him. And the, the result of that is because, uh, because the Jews of Ephesus reject Again, we're going to see a contrast here where I love this big but, and I'm going to kind of circle it in red over here in, in, in this uh, previous chapter where although in Corinth 
this Jewish uprising, their intention was evil, but the result was something really good came out of it for Christianity. Here, the Jews of Ephesus reject, but what is the result then of that? That he ends up going where and teaching for how long? Well, it says two years, right? He teaches for two years at where? At Tyrannus, T-Y-R-A-N-N-U-S school. Okay, and what is this Tyrannus school? What's the result of him teaching at the Tyrannus school? If you don't know what Tyrannus is yet, tell me what the result is. I love it. So Paul is at Ephesus and all in Asia hear the word of the Lord. Amazing. And interestingly, although he had he did have these 12 men and there's this very specific message about speaking in tongues that's delivered to us. Uh, we're going to talk about that here in just a second, more detail. We'll come back to it. But so for right now, I want to skip that and just say that he starts out, though, uh, here for three months, he spent with these men at, uh, that are the Jews of Ephesus. They reject him, so it forces him to go next door, basically, to this school called the, the School of Tyrannus, uh, which pretty much is an open forum and it's for for anyone who wants to come in for learning but it but what happens by it being pushed him being pushed outside of of the Jewish synagogue he comes now into contact with both Jews and Gentiles yeah and so in that doing that then the word of the lord gets taken to all of asia because as they come into this particular school it sounds to me like this is a school which is is has a transitional body of people they come in they do some learning and then they go home it's kind of like almost like um what do we call it when we go off on to schools for a period of time for a semester huh yeah maybe well i don't know if it's sabbatical but you know when a person goes and maybe they go to on a on a learning trip to israel and and work at a particular church uh, or or school in Israel for a three month stint, and then they come back to America. They've been away for schooling, and then they come home. Right. So this school of Tyrannus is a lot like that. It's a, it's a place of higher learning and education, and they go there, uh, get their learning, and then they spread out and go home. Right. So because of that, all in Asia hear the word of the Lord because he gets forced out of the synagogue and gets moved over to this school, which is open to all the populace. That's pretty cool. Again, that's why I wanted to say, but, right, the Jews reject, but all in Asia then get to hear the word of the Lord. Do you see that contrast? You might have want to put that as a contrast on your observation worksheet. Just so good because how, how Paul wanted to go to Asia and the Lord stopped him. Yes. Right. Right, and so now he's still in Ephesus, he's in, Greece, he's in Greece, not in Asia, but yet everything he's doing is still having its effect in, in Asia. All right, really cool. Well, yes, they saved Holy Spirit, that's what, how I did it, but they, so in other words, they received the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. But the whole, 
Well, it partly, but yes. Ephesus is Turkey. Yeah, I know, but Turkey at that time is Asia Minor. Yes, yes. I was thinking Corinth. I don't know why. My brain went back to, yeah, yeah. I know, exactly. And actually, they almost are as far as, honestly, you can sit on the coastline of Turkey and see Greece. <laughs> it's scary. But anyway, okay, on a good day when there's not so much smog in the air. Okay, 1 to 10. Now, let's go to 11 to 19. So we see then the result is Paul is at Ephesus. He's rejected by the Jews. But because of that, all in Asia get to hear the word of the Lord because he goes to, for two years to this place uh, called the, the Tyrannus School. Um, Another thing that comes up with this is later you're going to see in chapter 20, it says that he actually spent three years, right? Three years at Ephesus, correct? So in chapter 20, verses 18 to 31, it says three years in Asia. Um, This is to include his time at Ephesus, of which we are told two years is spent teaching at this school of Tyrannus. So obviously, again, what I can say to you is, Not all the details are given to us of all the things that they do. We do know this, three months, additional to these two years, three months are spent, he spent it with these Jews in the synagogue. So there's just another nine months that's not specifically deliberated, but what we do know is he spent some time here with these 12 men as well. So I think it's in chapter 20, 18 to 31, somewhere in there. Do you need me to look it up? I don't have... Okay, because I have it marked right now. Chapter 18, yeah. He spent a year and a half in Corinth. Yeah, year and a half in Corinth. But I think he's, but it said, he says in chapter 20, in one of the verses in there, that he spends three years in Asia. Okay, so, but here he says he spends two years at Ephesus at this particular school. So I think some of the other months are him maybe even going outside of Ephesus even who knows all right so again what the way we explain that is not this is not a record of Paul's ministry and we don't need to give account for every month and day that he spent it tells us however he spent two years at this school and because of that all the the people in Asia hear the word of the gospel which is really cool okay so now let's go to 11 to 19 of of Acts 19 and we see what introduced to us here. Jesus is doing many miracles. Uh, Paul is, yes. Yeah, you meant Paul. Paul is performing many miracles, right? God is performing them through, through Paul. Okay. And to the extent that even just a handkerchief that's been touched by him, right, which is quite amazing. So what happens then as a result of this great power that Paul has? Well, he is healing the sick, and then what happens with regard to this other people? Who's the other people group that's mentioned then? In verse 13. The Jewish exorcists, right? And they're called the seven sons of Siva, or Skiva, S-C-E-V-A, right? Um, Which is a Jewish chief priest. So they're sons of a Jewish chief priest. They show up in town. They see Paul and this mighty power that's going on in Paul. And what do they attempt to do? <laughs> yes, they, there's an attempt that says they're, they're um, 
Where's the word at? Because I saw the word that they attempt to do it. Here it is, verse 13. Uh, These Jewish exorcists who went out from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I injure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. So in other words, they're, they're kind of hijacking Paul's position of power and authority and thinking that they can, they can own it or possess it somehow, right? This reminds me of, of Jesus when the people come up, you know, in the, in the judgment, people come up to him and say, did we not cast out demons in your name? Right. Oh, very good. I love that. And you know what it makes me think of? How does it also kind of relate back to Simon the Magician? Did you you all think about Simon the Magician when you saw this? What did Simon the Magician want to do? He wanted to buy the power, right? And and how, how did Peter call him out on that? What were some things that he said about him? Your heart is not right with God. May your silver perish with you. Your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, and I see that you are in the bondage of iniquity. Now, we know that as a saved person, we are no longer in the bondage of iniquity. We've been set free from that, right? So what we see then is Simon the magician wanted that power too, and he tried to buy it, and Peter calls him out on it. Here we see these seven sons of Sceva who want to also utilize that power. They don't try to buy it, but they try to hijack it by simply naming the name of Jesus that Paul preached, thinking that by just naming a name, that's all that they needed. They don't really need the power of God dwelling in them to to uh, perform something, but that by simply saying, well, I'm gonna, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to say this. Yeah, uh, uh, Simon was actually looking for the authority to be able to lay his hands on people, and mm-hmm. they would get the power. Yes, the yes. Exactly. And these sons of Sceva, in like manner, were wanting the same kind of power for healing, for casting out demons in this case, rather than receiving the spirit. This one was for casting out spirits. In both cases, it was a supernatural power that they were trying to um, have or possess or own, but they weren't willing to come in through the door, right? There are false people who come in. What does Jesus speak about? About the, about the gate and the shepherd, and there's a true shepherd who there's one gate and he, you come in through the gate with the shepherd. But, but faults um, will come in over the back doors, right? They'll try to sneak in. And he's saying you can't do it that way. There's one way. With, with this power that Paul possessed and with this power that Peter possessed, both of them received it legitimately by faith, right? By the grace of God through faith. These other men, like Simon the magician who just wanted to buy it, and like these seven sons of, of Sceva who wanted to hijack it and just use it, they didn't believe on it. They hadn't put their faith and trust in it, and they certainly didn't themselves own the, the, the Spirit of God within them. But they wanted to use the name and hijack it. So I think it's a really good uh, additional insight about the what could become a mystical concept instead of just saying mystically in the name of Jesus. And can anybody do that? 
And the answer is no. What do we learn? We learn that you must actually possess the Spirit of God in order to, in order to yes, use that. Well, exactly. What happened to these seven sons of Sceva when they did when they did try to do that? They were trying to. Yes, in the. So there's a con. Did y'all see the contrast in here? They they were trying to cast out the spirits, right? The evil spirits. But what happened? The evil spirits did what? Cast them out of the house. <laughs> so one was he they wanted to cast the spirits out but the spirits instead casted them out. There's your contrast. It was so good. So uh let's put on here. God was performing <laughs> that's a good one that'll work okay he's the god was performing these extraordinary miracles at the hands of paul and these jewish exorcists wanted that wanted to use that or wanted to possess that power and they basically to hijack it they didn't want to attain it through legitimacy they wanted to just borrow it and use it right okay we're almost done because this next part won't take long. Okay, that's in verse 13. Okay, that was 11. All right, then verse 20. What do we see at the conclusion of this? What happens to the word? The word of the Lord uh, grows mightily and prevails. All right. So that kind of sets us up. Then let's give us a title for Acts 19. Paul is preaching, right? And the result is? We also see in there a, a riot was instigated, but then what, had ha- what happened at the end? No. In the end, it was just simply put down, which made me think about back in the verse before where God gave him a sign through that vision and said, go ahead and preach boldly. Don't be afraid and no harm is going to come to you, right? But yet then this riot rises up, but the end of it, what? It's all put to bed. It's all quieted down and nothing does come of it. 
So that's pretty cool, isn't it? That's where you know he was actually walking in the spirit of God. Okay, now we're going to do one last hurrah. We've got less than five minutes. The sign of tongues in Acts. We're going to talk about the three things. We've already talked about on this timeline. We saw the apostles uh, in chapter 2 receive the Holy Spirit, right? Receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues as a sign, correct? So this is a sign... Here's my sign, but it's blue this time instead of red. Um, So we see that particular sign. Now, here's what I want to propose to you. If we assume, and we do, that the first two supernatural signs of tongues recorded in Acts 2 and 11 are just that. They are supernatural signs, which were significant markers for work in the growth of the church, correct? Are we all in agreement on that? The first two were absolutely signs, and they were markers. Okay, then we have to, if we follow through with that, when we hit this third one, where again, filling with the Spirit and speaking in tongues must be, again, what? A sign and a marker for something significant. The trick is to figure out what, right? Because it isn't quite as clear to us here. Um, how many of you did commentary work and kind of took you all over the place? Did you all look at it at all? Okay. Well, the comment, I know I don't trust those commentaries either anymore. I did go to see what they were saying, though, for, for me as a teacher to say what might my students even come up with, because they may read those commentaries, number one. And number two, what might they come up with, because these are some logical things that people may have gone to to try to explain why speaking in tongues is again. We've already seen that the Jews are brought in, and we see the Gentiles are brought in. What's left, right? So in this circumstance, in the flow of events here, a couple of things have happened. We see the good news for Christianity is that it's been established, Right? That, that, that by Roman law, it's a, it's a legitimate religion which is going to be allowed to be preached. We see that all in Asia are beginning to hear, and Paul is preaching out of a place called Ephesus, correct? We see also then at Ephesus when he presents this gospel to these men, they begin to speak in tongues because they've received the Holy Spirit. So what we need to do is say, okay, in a timeline of events, let's try to reason this through. What do we know about Ephesus? What have we said already? It's what? It's a growing city and it's a port city. It's international. It's commerce. It's trade, right? Therefore, does it seem like a logical place for the gospel to go out from? Okay, it does, and especially in hindsight for us. Maybe for them at the time it was a little more of a stretch, but for us now in hindsight, it's absolutely perfect, okay? So um, we see that. Then what we see then is God working supernaturally previously through Gallo to allow that legitimacy of Christianity to be spread from that place in the Roman uh, uh, country or Empire, thank you. That's the right word. Okay, so he's legitimized Christianity in the in the Roman judicial system. Um, so this has a huge effect for Christianity's sake among the Gentile world. Now, what about Jerusalem? On the other hand, if if the home port had remained in Israel at Jerusalem and and even at Antioch, but particularly at Jerusalem as it was at this point, right? At this point, where is his home port? Where does Paul keep going back to? Jerusalem to give his reports. What's about to happen in Jerusalem? Yeah, we have 70 AD about to happen. We're going to have the temple is going to fall. 
right? What happens to all the Jews? Jews are going to be scattered. What about the church from there? And the church also, right? We, um, we know from history, think about Cappadocia, for instance, where they all left and went underground and had to hide from, from the Romans and so forth at that time because of their, their conquest of Jerusalem and Israel at that time and tr- trying to stamp them out. Now, why do, why do you think, or what do you think is the purpose even in God destroying the temple at this time in history? What does that do for the faith of Christianity? Okay, it, it does make it spread because the scattering. What do, if you go to Israel today and you look and you see on the Temple Mount there is no temple there, what does that profoundly say to you and me as Christians? It is finished. It is finished. So Judaism in its old form under the old temple rules and, and a judicial system is no longer needed, right? That part of, of, of the old law is fulfilled, right? So if you think about it, then if, it's, if this is destroyed, the temple falls, which, which by the way, elevates then Christianity, right, in, in the eyes of people. They're able to, if they have the spirit of God in them especially, they can go and see the temple is down and see the church has now been erected and go, aha, it is finished. We don't need the temple, right? Which is what Paul begins to write all his letters about. So in here now we have these uh, 12 men at Ephesus. They receive the spirit and speak in tongues. It's obviously a marker for something. It's a significant sign. So what do you think it might be a sign of? There you go. That the church is going to continue to grow. Jerusalem is going to fall, but I want you to know there's a significant event here. The gift of tongues in this moment of being filled with the Holy Spirit and them being able to speak in tongues is a sign. It has been a sign consistently through this book. So we have another sign. And God is saying something profound. So what is he saying? He's saying the church will grow. And by the way, he concludes it that way. The word of the Lord, it grows mightily and it prevails. It prevails in spite of the fact that Jerusalem is going to fall, which had been their hub. It had been their port city, but now who, what's going to be their, their, their hub? Ephesus. From Ephesus, Paul establishes a, another home port. From there, because of this, for instance, this, church, this school of Tyrannus, because of the fact that itself, the city is, is international, right? And people are coming and going because of the commerce and the trade, the ships that come in, the people they can touch, and then they go out. The whole world in that area is going to be touched because he establishes a, a church, people filled with the Holy Spirit, who by a sign spoke in tongues, validating that their faith was true. And God establishes right there a new hub for the spread of the gospel. Well, we, we believe it's before because of the preparatory. See, this is where they may not have fully gotten it at the time, but we can, in hindsight, go back and now look and say, oh, yeah, in 70 AD, this is coming down. 
So here in Acts, he's preparing a place for them to have a hub through which they will send the gospel message out and through which they'll go back and forth to, to, to uh, report in, as a matter of fact. Right, exactly. So we know that Jerusalem continues to stand for a period of time. But can't you imagine in the minds of, the, of these apostles at that time, Paul and others, looking at this going, why are they speaking in tongues? We know that was significant in chapter 2. We know that was significant in chapter uh, 10 and 11. Why is it here? Why are we now seeing another event of a supernatural sign of speaking in tongues? Well, you really only get the rest of that story as time passes as history was fulfilled, when Jerusalem is ransacked and and shut down, and that's no longer a hub, when, by the way, God wants to sever the identity of the church from the temple to really impress strongly in the hearts and minds of God's people, the temple work is finished, it's now a church. And it's, by the way, it's a church of Jew and Gentile in one body. Right? So he establishes a place of, of uh, his work and growth, and he marks it with a sign of speaking in tongues. Now, that is Katie's interpretation of why the speaking in tongues there. Because you have to kind of analyze the whole thing. The, the, go and read some of your commentaries and see what they have to say. Continue to meditate on what, how I have kind of interpreted this. Uh, but I can't imagine that we, what we do know is absolutely true is it is a marker. Just as the first two were a marker and a sign of something significant, this is a marker and a sign of something significant. So we have to figure out why Ephesus, why right now, why with these people? And if you do a timeline and look at what else, what's coming ahead and what's already happened, it's, it seems like the logical conclusion to me is that this is a marker that, that this is the birthing of this new thing and, and establishing of a new location. Falls and they speak in tongue. Yes. That's right. From here on, that is never seen again. So, by the way, that is also going to, re, you know, teach us another lesson. We'll talk about it more. But um, what are the norms for coming into faith? Is there is it required for the laying on of hands and the speaking in tongues, which has become a denominational teaching for some churches? And we need to talk about that more detail later. Okay.